Um, for the last few months, we have been going through this series called Upside Down Kingdom, which is basically the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew chapter 5, and it goes all the way to, uh, to Matthew chapter 7. And basically what the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of a, a, an intense discipleship training Jesus gave his disciples, and of course, he is giving us. And basically what that teaching is, is all these things that we need to know and put into practice um, to show the world what we believe and who and whom do we believe in, basically. Um, what I love about this, uh, the Sermon on the Mountain, though, is that it's extremely practical. It's one of those uh, sections of a scripture that is giving you much more than information. It's actually calling you to do something. So listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it uh, in his commentary of this sermon. After all, the law was not meant to be praised. It was meant to be practiced. Our Lord did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order that you and I might comment upon it, but in order that you may carry it out. And I love that statement because there's this tendency to look at this sermon, to look at this uh, set of teachings and say something like, man, that's nice. But that's it. So the whole idea here is that Jesus is giving us something for us to put in practice in this world, in this creation, for his glory, your joy, and the well-being of everyone here. And Matthew chapter 7, uh, from this point on, gives us what I would call the foundations of what, is allow, of what is going to allow us to live this out. In other words, without Matthew chapter 7 on, until the end of Matthew chapter 7, um, we will never be able to live this out. So you could say that this is the first of three different teachings that the Lord Jesus is going to do about these foundations that we're supposed to have. Uh, and according to this text, from what, the way I, I see it, uh, Jesus tells us that we need three things in order for us to be able to live this out. We need to understand or believe in the way. We need to believe in the truth. And we, we need to believe in the life. Now, I know that that's a text in the Bible, but I'm using it differently right now. Because I think that Jesus is going to show us that there's only one way for us to be able to do this. There's only one truth that we must embrace in order to live this. And there's only one life that would allow us to live this out. The way, the truth, and the life. So let's go with the first one. Um, Jesus calls us here to be people of the way. So let's just start with verse 12. And Jesus says, so in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, the famous phrase there is, do to others what you would have them do to you. So, question for the group. Remember that this is participation, at least when I'm here, right? Um, how many of you guys heard of that before, that sentence before? All right. How many of you heard of that before you were believers? Yeah, you might not remember because people here have been believers forever, right? But the idea is this. <laughs> Almost every single one, this is a popular saying, not just among Christians. This is a popular saying in our popular culture. It's known as the golden rule. Everyone knows the golden rule. But it's interesting, everyone wants to apply the golden rule without understanding what the golden rule says. 
What I find interesting, though, as I was studying this text, is that when Jesus is giving this teaching to his original audience, people already knew this idea as well. They have heard of this principle, if you will, before, but a little bit different. So if you would ask anybody from his original audience if they ever heard this principle before, almost everyone would say, yeah, we heard of that before, but a little bit different. This is what they have heard. What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. That is the whole law. Go and learn. Let me say it again. What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. That is the whole law. Go and learn. Can you see the difference? Well, let me repeat Jesus' words just in case. Do to others what you will have them do to you. It seems very similar, but it's actually very different. It's actually radically different. Jesus' teachings are always radically different to anything else. And this is the explanation. When people heard this saying before, this is why they heard. If you don't want to suffer, if you don't want to experience trials, if you don't want to have problems, if you don't want to struggle, if you don't want to experience pain or the discipline of God, don't harm others. That's basically what people heard. If you don't want to suffer, don't make other people suffer. You know what the problem is that? Uh, the problem with that, though, is that that thought, that system of beliefs, that philosophy of life is extremely selfish and egocentric. Because the only reason why you are going to do something for somebody or you are not going to do something for somebody is simply because you don't want to suffer. In other words, you're not going to hurt anybody, not because you care about that person, not because you love that person, not because you're interested in that person, but because the main reason is that you don't want to suffer yourself, which that in itself is extremely egocentric. Selfish and a self-centered motivation. And as you heard before, probably motivations matter. But what Jesus is saying is completely different. What Jesus is saying is not that you shouldn't do other things to other people so you won't get hurt. What Jesus is saying is that you should treat other people the same way you would want to be treated, regardless if you get treated the same way or not. What Jesus is saying that we treat other people the same way we would want other people to treat us. We give to other people the same things that we would want other people to give us. We help other people the same way we would want other people to help us. We are generous to our others the same way we would want other people to be generous to us. We are patient with others the same way we would want other people to be patient with us. We receive in our homes people the same way we would want others to receive us. Just in case you missed it, this is not the prosperity gospel thing. Jesus is not promising anything right here. Jesus is calling us to learn how to put other people first. That's the call. And you know what's the reward? That's the reward. 
Did you notice Jesus doesn't say that you're going to have, you're going to receive the same blessings. He doesn't say that people will treat you well. He doesn't say that things are going to go well for you. And as you're going to see in a second, it's actually the opposite. What Jesus says is, if you want to be people that live the Sermon on the Mount, you got to learn how to put people first. And that's your reward. Put people first. And that's your reward. You know, our popular thinking, I think, and in our fallen egocentric nature, this idea that we're supposed to put other people first is so, so alien to us. It goes contrary to our hearts. Because we have believed the lie that if we take care of ourselves, if we protect ourselves, if we love ourselves, then we will be happy. But Jesus says in one verse that there's nothing more fulfilling, nothing more satisfying, nothing more meaningful than giving yourself for somebody else. That's how you live the Sermon on the Mountain. This is not just coming from me. Let me give you an example from this um, South African pastor named Andrew Murray in the 1800s. This is what he says about giving yourself for someone. When Jesus said, whoever will be first among you shall be your servant, it's the same principle, he simply is teaching us that, that he's teaching us the blessed truth that there is nothing so divine and heavenly as being a servant and a helper of all. The faithful servant who recognizes his position find a real pleasure in supplying the wants of the master or his guests. Listen, listen to this. Being servants of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny as men created in the image of God. Have you ever heard that before? By the popular thinking, by the secular thinkers, have you ever heard that before? Actually, we have heard the opposite. You think of yourself first, and then everybody else second. And I want to say that sometimes, sometimes in the church, we believe the same thing. Can you imagine what the world would be like if we actually believed this? Can you imagine what this world would be like if we actually lived the principle that we ought to love other people much more than what we love ourselves? Can you imagine what the world would be like if we actually do to others what we want others to do to us? So if you're honest, as I'm trying to be honest with myself here, this is hard to do. Any of you guys agree? How many of you guys struggle with this? Please raise your hand. I love this group. You're honest. 70% of you guys. <laughs> Because most of us don't have issues doing this toward the people we love or the people that would actually give us something in exchange. But most of us struggle with this because when you have to do this to someone that won't do that for you, that's the problem. But there's something deep down inside every single one of us that know that this is the way this is supposed to be. 
That's why we are moved, for example, every time we hear about some parent doing something sacrificially for their kids. We are all moved by that. We are all moved when we hear about someone that did something amazing for somebody else. That's why, for example, we have so many stories about these unknown heroes from 9-11. Like every time you watch those videos or hear the, the stories, you are moved. I'm actually convinced that this is the why, this is the reason why the company Marvel, you, you heard of that company before? Have produced 20 movies since 2008 that has to do with heroes. Because deep down inside, we all admire heroes. Because a good hero has the ability to die or sacrifice for somebody else. That's the reason why this company has made $17.5 billion since 2008. And guess who paid for that? The very people that hate the principle. So the last movie, for those of you that like those kind of movies, Infinite War, is a great movie, but everyone hated it. Do you know why? So if you're, you're not going to watch the movie, just listen. If you're planning to watch that movie, let me ruin it for you. <laughs> At the end of that movie, the heroes die. Yeah, that's not the way a hero movie is supposed to finish, you know? Because there's something inside of us that tells us that the best way to live is when you learn to put other people first. And we spend much more time trying to convince ourselves that that's not true. And Jesus knows that that's the best way to live. It's the most fulfilling way to live. It's the most satisfying way to live when you learn to die to yourself for somebody else. When you deny yourself for somebody else. When you sacrifice yourself for somebody else. The only way you and I are going to get to live the Sermon on the Mount is we will learn to put people first. And if you believe that, that should affect everything in your life. You should treat everything different in your life. The way you view your finances will be different. The way you work will be different. The way you use your talents and your gifts and your abilities will be different. The way you practice hospitality will be different. Your ethnic preferences will be different. Your commitment to people will be different. The way you do church and we do life together would be different. Because we apply one principle. Do to others what would you have them do to you. That's the way. No other way to live the Sermon on the Mount. That's the way. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there, though. Because he also calls us to be people of truth. So let me explain the way I'm using the word truth there. This is my second point. Because I'm using it uh, in a different way. What Jesus is about to do here is kind of give us a reality check of what the Christian life looks like when you live in the public sphere. All right? What Jesus is about to do is to give us a reality check of what the Christian life looks like when you live in the public sphere. And this comes from one word in the text, the word narrow, that appears in two different occasions. 
It appears in verse 13, and it appears in verse 14. And I really don't know why the translators use the same word, narrow, narrow, when these two different meanings, actually. So the first meaning of the word narrow in verse 13, when it says, enter through the narrow gate, that word narrow there means restricted or small, which is the same word that is used later on in verse 14 when it says, small is the gate. That word small and narrow is the same word, restricted. And I'm going to come back to that later on. But the second meaning of the word narrow is the one that we find in the second part of verse 14. And narrow is the road that leads to life. Now, that word narrow there in verse 14 means this. Suffering or trouble or hardship. That's what the word narrow means. It doesn't mean restricted in verse 14. It means suffer or trouble or hardship. Actually, in some other places of the Bible, the word narrow is translated as suffering persecution. And this is the part that I, this is the part I think that is extremely important. Because I think that Jesus wants us to know and realize that the Christian life is a suffering life. I think that's very important. And I think that you got to keep in mind the context of the text. If you have been walking with us through this series, you know that, for example, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to be light and salt in the midst of a world that don't want you. He calls us to be obedient and faithful in the midst of a world that doesn't believe what you believe. He calls us not to pursue revenge. Now, that hurts, right? He calls us to love our enemies. That hurts. He calls us to be generous and not to judge others. And what is crazy about this text, though, is that Jesus says that as we try to live this out, you will be persecuted, you will suffer, you will experience rejection, you will experience hardship. Because the Christian life is a life of suffering. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to call the cost of discipleship. If you want to learn how to live the Sermon on the Mount, you better get used to suffering. Don't you hate that? I do. But Jesus is very honest about that. Jesus is very honest of what it means to be a Christian. This is not the first time Jesus says something like this, or not the only time Jesus says something like this. In Matthew chapter 10, right, right before he sends his disciples into the world, he says, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. What do you think that means? You will suffer. You're not riding a park. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. There's no right in the park there. 
Look, chapter 9, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What do you think that means? The Christian life is a suffering life. You know what's crazy about what Jesus is saying here? That this is not the best recruitment process. This is not the best recruitment technique. This is not how you invite people to follow you, and yet he did. Because to be able to live the Sermon on the Mountain, you must realize that suffering is part of the program. Suffering is part of the program. Right from the beginning of Christianity, Christianity has always been a religion that requires suffering. That's why Christianity is a narrow religion. It doesn't mean that we suffer all the time, of course, but it means that you will suffer somehow, somewhere, at one moment in your life. Listen, I am convinced, and this is only my opinion, okay, so please don't crucify me. I am convinced that this is one of the reasons why Christianity has lost influence in modern day society. See, we have the tendency to blame the secular thinkers or the postmodern thinkers of everything that is going wrong with our country today. <clears throat> and they have their share. But I don't think that's the main reason. I actually think that there are three main reasons why Christianity has lost influence in our country in the last 150 years. Number one reason is this. We actually don't know how to apply Point one, verse 12, inside the church. This might not apply to you, but maybe it applies to you. Part of the reason why we have lost influence in our community, in our context, in our society, in our country, is because we actually have a hard time loving one another. And if you remember in John chapter 13, John says that the people will know that we are Jesus' disciples by the way we love one another. If we don't know how to love one another, how, how are we going to pretend that we can love someone that is not a Christian? This is the thing. If you love your political party more than the Christian you have next to you, you will not be a good witness in our society. If you love more your ethnic preferences above your Christianity... You will not be a good witness in our society. If we don't learn how to love one another regardless of our differences, we will, we will continue to lose influence in our society. That's number one. The second reason why uh, we have lost influence in our society, once again, this is my opinion, is because there's this desire for us to become relevant, you know? And I'm using the word relevant intentionally because there's this idea that in order for us to be effective in society, we have to be relevant to such a degree that we start to compromise biblical foundations. Like if the Bible ever, ever stops being relevant. So, for example, 150 years ago, and this is in our Constitution, we would say that all, everyone has the right to exercise their religion, and I would say, amen, there's nothing wrong with that. 
150 years ago, we would all say, but it doesn't mean that we all have the truth. Because if everyone has the truth, no one has the truth. Right? But now, not only we say that everyone has the right to exercise their own religion, but that everyone is right. And if everyone is right, who is right? But I think that happened because even within the church, we have compromised the truth. And the third reason why I think that we have lost influence in our society is because of this concept of suffering. And I want you to hear me really well. We have a tendency to offer love, hope, peace, and joy without suffering, which is completely unbiblical. To suffer is part of the package. This is the reality. Every single one of us will suffer. It's how you suffer what makes the difference. This is C.S. Lewis talking about this topic. We were promised suffering, he said. They were part of the program. Sufferings, they were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they who mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. The best Christianity is the one that offers love, hope, joy, peace, but also is honest about the reality of suffering. So let me use an illustration that I used before. Um, Scott Souls, that is a pastor that I listen to a lot, simply because he's a disciple of Tim Keller, and I love Tim Keller, right? So whoever he recommends, I listen. And this guy is telling the story about this uh, American missionary that took a group of people to Ghana, you know, West Africa, um, to visit this church. And as soon as this group of missionaries come in, this lady gets up and welcomes them by saying this. Welcome our American friends to Ghana, where we have joy because we need Jesus more. I'll read it again, okay, because it's a little bit offensive. Welcome our American friends to Ghana, where we have joy because we need Jesus more. And this is, this is the thing. That love, peace hope and joy becomes real when you know you need Jesus. And you know you need Jesus every time you suffer. It's impossible for us to live the Sermon on the Mountain unless we are ready to what comes. Actually, I am convinced that this is part of one of the reasons why we have created these holy fraternities that no, no non-Christian could actually be part of. Something inside of me tells me that part of the reason why we create these communities that, that are completely divorced from the world is because we are afraid of suffering. But if you are a parent, you know this, that's, that love hurts. When you choose to love someone, it hurts. 
I think that Jesus is clear about this. I think that Jesus says that the way in order for us to leave the Sermon on the Mountain is to do to others what we want others to do to us. And I think that Jesus is clear about this truth, that our call requires suffering. Because narrow is the road that leads to life. That's the way and that's the truth. Now, if I stop there, you have nothing to cling to, though. If I stop the sermon here, you will try to live this out and you will destroy yourself. Because we cannot, it, it's impossible for us to start loving people the way we're supposed to. And it's impossible for us to embrace suffering just because. Therefore, we need something else. Point number three, that's why we're called to be people of the life or people of life. And of course, we're going to talk about Jesus in point number three. It is only when Jesus is our life that we actually can embrace this. But I'm going to do a little exercise with you. Is that okay? I'm going to need your approval, please. <laughs> Let's pretend for a second that we have four kinds of people here, okay? Some of you represent uh, non-believers. All right? Maybe we have a non-believer here, someone that is seeking, seeking or is uh, exploring Christianity, right? There's a second group here that we're going to call the moral people. There's a third group here that we're going to call the religious people. And there's the fourth group of people that I'm going to call the Christians. The non-believer, the moral, the religious, and the Christian. And every single one of, of you four hear this sermon in a different way. Actually, every single one of you will read the Sermon on the Mount in a different way. So... If you are an unbeliever, someone that is exploring Christianity or, or seeking, um, you probably hear this thing and say, man, that's amazing. Here this person is talking about someone that is calling his people to learn how to put other people first. Here we hear Jesus calling his people to learn how to suffer for other people. That's amazing. I like that. You might even find that inspiring if you are an unbeliever. You would actually say, man, if everyone would apply this, the world would be so different. You might even say, I want to do that. I just don't need Jesus. I could do that, an unbeliever would say, without Jesus. You know what the problem is, though? That no one is selfless enough to be able to do this. No one is willing to suffer for others in the name of goodness. And I would actually challenge the view and say that if you don't believe in anything, you have no foundations to justify why you should be good. You know why? Because who determines what's good? It can't be pop, uh, public opinion. Isn't that what Hitler did? So wanting to be good is not enough. You won't change that way. Now, the second group here is the moral person. The moral person is the one that hears uh, that Jesus is calling us to learn how to put other people first, that is calling us to learn how to suffer for other people's sake, and you like that. But you like it because you think it's good, because being good is good. You are a person of moral principles. You know what the problem is with you, though, if you are a moral person? That being good gets old. 
Because the moment you try to be good to other people and they are ungrateful to you, and the moment you try to be good to other people and they don't treat you the same way you're treating them, you will quit. It's not enough to say, I want to be good, and it's not enough to say, I want to suffer for others. It's not enough. Actually, I would say that the way you're treating this thing is almost like a transaction. I'm going to be good to other people so they could be good to me. But if they're not good to me, I don't have to be good to other people. Therefore, wanting to be good is not enough. The third group of people here is the religious people. The people that hear that Jesus is calling us to put other people first, that Jesus is calling us to suffer for the sake of other people and the sake of God, and you like it. But if you're religious, you like it because you think that if you do that, God will be impressed by your righteousness. And God will be impressed by your faithfulness. But I want to remind you that the Bible is clear when it says that all your righteousness and your faithfulness and your obedience and your disciplines are like filthy rags before the righteous God. Your sinful behavior always outweighs your good behavior. Therefore, the, defi- the desire to be good is not enough. So how do we change? And the answer is option number four. When you actually believe what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is that you're narrow. Remember how I told you that the word narrow is meaning restricted or small? It's when you only have one thing in your mind. When you only have this idea in your mind. Number one, that there's only one and one person alone who has actually lived this out. Actually, this, what we just preached, verses 12, 13, and 14, it's all about Jesus. He is the gate, he is the road, and he is the life. He is the only one that has put other people first and was willing to sacrifice himself for others. He is the one that is truly good. He is the one that is truly selfless in such a way that he can exercise compassion, even though he knew that the very people that were objects of of his compassion will betray him and denied him later on. It is only when you are so narrow that you believe that only Jesus is the one that actually lived this out perfectly. It's it's only when you are so narrow that you believe that only Jesus was willing to sacrifice for somebody else. And that's why he went to the cross. It's only when you are so and so narrow that every time you read the Bible, you realize that no one can live this out but Jesus. But this is the difference, though. That the more you believe that, timer. <laughs> I'm still going for another 10 minutes. <laughs> timer stopped, but I haven't. <laughs> that when you live that, that when you actually are so narrow that you believe that, you start to become like the person you worship. Because we always become like the things we worship. And the more you see Jesus as the one that has actually lived the Sermon on the Mount, the more you want to become like him. And you start to give others what you have received. So you learn how to put others first. 
Because Jesus put you first. And you start to be willing to suffer for others because Jesus suffered for you first. And you learn how to be selfless because you have a selfless God. And you try to be good, not for goodness sake, but because your God is good. Look at what Jesus did for you. And you try to be good to others, not to earn God, but because you have God. The only way, the only truth, and the only life is Jesus. And the more you worship him, the more you become like him. It's impossible for us to live the Sermon on the Mountain if Jesus is not your life. Not one thing in your Christianity, but your life. Because he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. Amen? Amen. Can you do me a favor? Can you please stand? Let's just pray together and receive the benediction that Jesus Christ guaranteed for us at the cross. Lord, we thank you so much that when you call us to live this radical life, Lord, it's not just because, but you call us to live this radical life not only because it gives you glory, not only because he's the best for this world, but even because he's the best for us. There's nothing better, more fulfilling, and more satisfying than giving ourselves for other people. And that's why you did it for us. And I pray, Lord, that as we meditate on this and as we embrace this, we become people that actually live this out. That we learn to give others what we will want to receive. That we learn to suffer in such a way, Lord, that it gives you glory. Lord, and we acknowledge that this is not easy. And therefore, Lord, we pray that you, that you uh, take us so close to the cross, so and so close to the cross, that we start to believe and apply what you have showed us. And with that thought, Lord, with that thought, Lord we want to receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the church says, have a blessed day. We love you. Thanks for coming.